Welcome to System B2B Marketing Podcast, hosted by Andre Zinkovich. Every week with B2B marketing professionals, we dive deeply into topics ranging from creating an effective marketing strategy to lead generation methods. Our goal is to help B2B marketers and founders increase pipeline, scale revenue, and customer growth with system marketing. Learn more at getlido.com. Okay, guys, welcome to the new episode of the full final B2B marketing show. It's episode 24, and today I'm going to talk with Ben Baker, who is seasoned B2B marketer and entrepreneur from United States. Uh, the reason why I invited Ben is really interesting, because um, recently I was reading about um, the failures uh, international companies did when they were mm -hmm. entering U.S. market. And you know, if you are marketing your product in the Uni in United States the same way you are promoting it in Europe or in Asia, you will fail. This rule applies not only to the tech startups but also to major established companies. Because probably uh, all of you have heard the stories of Tesco, Carrefour, Suzuki, and other well-known brands whose U.S. expansion led to significant losses. And actually, uh, recently I find I found a research uh, done by Matteo Fabiano, who is a European expert in the United States, and he researched 300 tech international companies that entered the U.S. market and figured out nine common mistakes, like lack of focus, misunderstanding the market dynamics, sample of one, poorly localized product, too much focus on technology, bad hiring decisions, slow reorganization, and not understanding cultural differences. And actually, this motivated me to find a guest uh, for this full final B2B marketing podcast who can explain how to avoid these mistakes and launch mm -hmm. your product on the US market successfully. And today, yeah, met, uh, meet our guest, Ben Baker. Ben, thanks a lot for accepting my invite. Uh, Andre, thank you for having me. It's, it's nice to talk to somebody across the pond. I just, you know, to get everybody's right, I am an American citizen. I was actually born in the United States. I actually live in Canada up in Vancouver on the West Coast. But I would say that at least 80% of my business is in the United States and has been for decades. You know, so I you know, I am a Canadian selling into the United States on, on a regular basis. So you know, you know, I get to be that international market coming into the United States as well. But it is, it's an interesting market. The, the Americans, the North American market on its own is an interesting market and we'll, we'll get into that. But you know, I I wanted to give everybody a little bit of a background of, of who I am and what I do, just to, just to start off with. I come sure. from 25 years in the communications world. I started off 25 years ago killing a lot of trees. I did a lot of direct mail. So it was all business to business, business to consumer, direct mail, 50, 100, 250, a million pieces of direct mail at a time. And it was all about learning how to tell a story effectively. How do you reach people emotionally? How to get people to not only listen, but also engage. And that's probably the key things that I've learned over the years. Over the last 10 or 15 years, I've focused on a lot to do with branding and internal branding of companies, how to build better leaders, how to create you know, more engaged, retain and grow employees, how to tell that brand story in a way that's compelling and that people want to engage with and react to. Uh, I am the host of the the uh, Your Living Brand Live podcast. We've been around for three years and over 160 episodes. I have a, a community on leadership called LeadersMadeHere.com that's that's actually opening up in August uh, in response to our new book that's coming out. So I've got I've got two books on the market. Um, and you know, I, I love being with you guys. I love talking about branding. I love talking about marketing. I love talking about how do we communicate effectively and how do we communicate in the language of our audience? So hopefully that gives your audience some pretext of where, where I'm coming from. And I just love to answer questions. 
Uh, I'm not sure that uh, you described it in the best possible way. And thanks a lot, actually, for providing more clarity. Um, you know, I want to start our chat with a provocative question. Sure. Let me know, please, the number one thing you hate about companies that are entering U.S. market. I think the number one thing that any company needs to be aware of when they enter the U.S. market is assuming that whatever worked in your native country, doesn't matter whatever it is, is going to work in a different country. And it doesn't matter if it's moving into the United States. It doesn't matter if it's an American company moving into Europe, into Africa, into Asia, etc. It's the preconceived notion of I've been a big success here. I'm going to be a big success everywhere. Every company, and I'm talking from Coca-Cola to McDonald's to Starbucks to any international company, has to take a look at the local market, understand the local culture, understand the local norms, understand how people want to engage and be able to modify their brand so, therefore, it is still their brand. It is still who they are and what they do but it speaks in a relevant way to the to the uh, to the local audience and there's far too many companies that assume that whatever worked in one jurisdiction is going to work in a different one so that's that's probably the number one challenge that i see for 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 companies all over got it thank you so much um you know uh we were chatted a little bit before going live and uh i asked my community about the questions um, they have, I asked Europeans, what's, uh, you know, what questions do you have um, regarding US market? And uh, probably uh, I can uh, combine all of them and ask one broad question. What are the most important things about US tech market we should know? About the tech market? Um... Yeah, because my community mostly consists of tech companies like sure. hardware, software yep. as a service, et cetera. Ab absolutely. That the United States is a country of 350 million people in 50 different states with 50 different jurisdictions, with 50 different sets of regional laws. And you need to be very careful about how are you developing your distribution system? Are you going to be your own distribution partner or are you bringing distribution partners on board? And I think that that's a, a very key thing to do. Are you going to be the technology partner and bring on American distribution partners that understand the local lays of land and be able to work within the jurisdictions that are already there or are you going to make that jump across the pond yourself and, and actually firmly create a presence in North America? Because there are legal ramifications, there's brand ramifications, there's judicial um, uh, ramifications, there's there's uh, human resources ramifications, et cetera. There's all sorts of different things you need to look at on a state-by-state -state basis. And you also need to take a look at where is your client base you know being in california being in san francisco because everybody's in san francisco but your you know your clients are in new york it doesn't make any sense so the first thing you really need to do is you need to understand is the play that you're going for a national play is it a regional play is it a local play you know what where are your clients who are your clients where do they hang out um, how how are you needing to get to them? Are you getting to them over the phone? Are you getting to them on a on a technology on a digital solution? Do you need to be you know face to face with your clients on a regular basis? And obviously during COVID, things are going to change as well. But you really need to look at geographically what makes sense because you know to to fly from one side of the country to the other is five hours. You know if 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 you can get a direct flight, you know, if you can get a direct flight, therefore, you know, you may have to change planes in Chicago and spend three hours in Chicago and get caught in a snowstorm. And all of a sudden you're there overnight or two days as the airport shut down. So 
These are some things that you need to be thinking about, whether you're a hardware distribution or a software distribution. If you're a software distribution, you're probably a SaaS program. You know, logistics is not a big deal. It's, it's just a click of a download. However, if you're a hardware distribution, you need to take a look and sit there going, where are the major you know, partners that you're going to be distributing through? And how do you have easy access into their distribution center? So there, there's a there's a thousand different things that you need to look at. And I'm sure the same type of things need to be looked at in Europe, but it's a matter of understanding the lay of the land. Where are the decision makers? You know, who are the major buyers of your, of your product? Where, where are they located? Are there any jurisdictional issues that you need to be worried about? Is there, you know, it, does it make sense for you to be incorporated in one state versus another for tax reasons? Um, there's, hundreds of different issues that need to be thought of. And, and every company are going to be different depending on what you're selling and how you're selling it. And let me know, are there any differences between East Coast and West Coast? Do we need uh, to know anything or consider, you know, some particular features, let's call it this way, of East Coast and West Coast cities? Uh, I would say that the West Coast versus the East Coast mentality is probably something that that really most people from outside of North America and the Midwest don't let's not negate you know those 30 states in, in the middle where there are some real big tech giants you know in the in the Midwest in in Chicago in Chicago in in, uh, in the in Oklahoma I mean there's there's places in Texas there's places in Arizona there's places that are tech tech centers that are outside the East Coast and they're outside the West Coast and you know it's going to become more and more so as as people become more remote tech centers because they can they can build these enormous you know uh, places in Oklahoma for ten cents on the dollar in terms of land value and be able to bring in you know tech people there. However, your East Coast versus West Coast is your West Coast is far more laid back, more you know more. Um, Dockers and 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 uh, and, and uh, golf shirts mentality, where New York is very much still suit and tie, and the, and all the mentalities that go along with it. You know, it's a far more conservative versus a far more uh, broad based, you know, um, uh, entrepreneurial type uh, idea on the West Coast. Silicon Valley is still far more entrepreneurial. In, in their thought process, especially in the tech bubble, than New York is. You know, it tends to be if you, if you are if you are serious about innovation, if you want to be one of part of the the tech solution and and the innovative crowd, you know, you tend to be more uh, Silicon San Francisco based. However, there are going to be a far more in terms of insurance technology. Insurance technology hub is is more East Coast. Because all the insurance, like the all the major uh, insurance companies, are all on the East Coast, so they need to be near where where their clients are. Got it, Ben. Thanks a lot for clarifying it. Uh, one more question I want to ask about the U.S. market, and still it would be a bit broad question. Uh, but anyway. What are the biggest misbeliefs or stereotypes uh, about U.S. market? That is homogeneous. You know, it, it's probably that that what what will work in New York will work in California, that will work in Arizona, will will work in Texas, will work in Florida, will work in Oklahoma, will work in North Dakota. Um, it's because they are all Americans. There are some overlying factors you know the it, it's um the you know the u.s constitution is ingrained in every single of the 350 million people you know they all believe in life liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know they all believe in individual freedoms they all believe in the you know the right to privacy um you know there are all those underlying factors however how people think and how people react and how people do business is very different based on where you are. You know, where New York tends to be more about dollars and cents, Texas tends to be a lot more about relationships. You know, so it, it, it comes down to no like and trust. If, and, and that goes a lot with most major businesses. Until people trust you, 
until people understand that your solution is going to fix their problem and it's not going to disrupt their business model to a point where it's going to be painful for them to be able to make the move, they're not even going to consider it. So it's a matter of looking at it going, okay, in certain places, this may be a three-month buying cycle. In this, other places, this might be a 15-month buying cycle, depending on what the culture is of the people that you're buying into. So it's 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 thinking that everybody is homogeneous. And if you go into the U.S. market, everybody's going to think the same. Everybody's going to react the same. You can market in, you know, in all 50 states in one way, and it's going to work for all 50 markets. It's not true. So you need to think about regional. You need to think about the Southwest versus the Northeast. You need to think about the North versus the South. You need to think about East Coast versus West Coast. You need to think about the, you know, the Plains, the Plains states. And you need to think about the regional differences, especially if you're a B2C type product. You know, if you're, if you're going direct to the consumer, you definitely need to take a look at what are the regional differences and be able to do that. I mean, perfect example, a friend of mine by the name of Stan Phelps is an international speaker and he travels all the way around the world. Okay. His big thing is we get Instagram and, and Facebook messages from him from whatever country it is. The first thing he does is he goes into a McDonald's and he goes into the McDonald's. Why? Not to have the regular Big Mac, but to see what's the local fare. What what are you going to have in Croatia to McDonald's that you wouldn't have in Boston or in Tel Aviv or in, in Shanghai or in Australia? And there's always something that's a little different on the menu that speaks to the regional difference. And I think that that's a really good lesson for any company to realize is that you need to understand that there is 50 United States However, there are regional differences and thinking of it as one big country, it, it would be thinking like the EU as one country. You know, if you thought of the EU as one country and people in Germany think the same as the Italians who think the same as the Greeks that think of the same as, you know, any, as the French, it, it's just not realistic. So if we think that way that, you know, that Oklahoma and, and France might think the same way and, and Brit Britain and New York might think the same way and LA may think the same as Italy, you know, just to use analogies, that's a better way of looking at things. And we need, when we're creating marketing strategies, when we're thinking of go-to market strategy, we need to be immersed in the country, in the, in the place that we're in and bring in local talent in terms of marketing that understands the regional differences and can help you market with a regional flair. Because trying to do your marketing from the head office in Germany or Italy or Greece or wherever, and having thinking that that's going to land, that marketing is going to land, you know, in a, in a, a way that resonates in the United States is just not going to happen. Because the people in Europe just don't understand the mentality of the North Americans, just like I don't understand Asian markets. And I, you know, and I don't really understand, I wouldn't have the audacity to bring a, a North American product to Germany without bringing in a German marketing firm to have their, them sit down and talk to me about, okay, how do we take our brand and make it relevant within this marketplace? That was great insight for me, basically. Um, Cause, you know, still in Europe, uh, we prefer to consider United States as one country, and that was a great insight. So you need to consider the same. Like you can't, uh, you can't even compare Italy and uh, Germany. These are two completely different countries, or Greece and Sweden. And that's a great insight. So uh, once entering uh, United States market, you need to. Clearly, uh, you need to understand where your target audience is in what regions and think about how to align your message with the regional mentality, with the regional culture. That was a great insight. Thanks a lot for providing it. Uh, you know, one more thing I want to ask you. You mentioned trust as a key mm -hmm. factor to success. And I remember uh, that recently I posted on LinkedIn and you commented to this post saying that the one thing I can say, I'm citing you, the one thing I can say here is that trust is a huge factor right now. 
people need to believe that you understand them, their needs, their wants, and their desires. And my question is, how to establish trust on US market if nobody knows you? Okay, well, let's let me tell you a story and then we'll get into that. Um, because I'll give you an example of a tr trust gone bad. And there is a um, department store in the United States called Target. I'm not sure if, if there's Target stores in, in Europe or not, but there's a department store in tar uh, uh, Target in the United States, which is huge. They're, they're, they're enormous stores. You know, they're all over the United States. They're, they're a discount re retailer and they sell everything. Um, you know, they're, think of them like a Walmart type, type, uh, mentality. And they realized that there was a play to come into the Canada and to come into Canada in a big way. One of the major Canadian retailers was going out of business. There was all this real estate that was available. The footprint was the right size. The market was the right size. The, their old clients were the right type of clients. And they knew that an enormous amount of Canadians, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians, would come across the border many times a year to shop at target stores at, at the, at the, uh, you know, the border stores, you know, there's usually a store within 50 or hundred kilometers of the border and people would come in and they would do their shopping and they would go home. So the, the Americans thought, Oh, wait a second, we can just go in and we could, we can buy up this thing. We can create a stores and we're going to be just the way we were, you know, and people are going to do it. The problem was they didn't understand the Canadian marketplace. They didn't understand this, the subtle cultural differences within the market. They didn't understand that, you know, the levies and the taxes and what it took to bring the stuff into Canada uh, and, and the enormous extra cost that it would be. Therefore, when they came into Canada, their, their staff was undertrained for the Canadian marketplace. Their stocks were under, uh, their shelves were understocked. They, they didn't have the logistics down pat. There was a whole bunch of things they did and they lost the trust of the Canadian market. People that were, were ready to buy at Target, you know, millions of people were ready to buy at Target and they lost that trust. And within three years of, of opening up a hundred stores, they were all closed. Now this is probably billions of dollars that was lost in a play that should not have go wrong. And this was the fact that they didn't do the research properly in order to maintain the trust that they had already built. They had, they had created this level of trust. They, they knew there was a marketplace, but they didn't understand why these people were coming across and what the major factors were of why the Canadians were coming across the border to, to shop at Target. And they weren't able to replicate that in the Canadian stores. So trust is an enormous thing. And in order to establish trust, I'm a big believer of test. You know, you need to do test markets. You need to, first of all, before you you, you invest in putting bricks and mortar stores or, or head offices or anything along things, you create a regional test team. And maybe you create one, you know, one branch office in New York or LA or you know, wherever you think that it's going to work with you. And you work with a team to be able to establish and be able to go out to the trade shows. And all of this is going to be, you know, coming in the next 12 to 24 months. I mean, there aren't going to be trade shows for another 12, 12 to 24 months. But being able to build those relationships, and, and right now we can do these over Zoom calls and over WebEx calls and, and communication and find out who the major customers are, what their major challenges are, what is you know, what are the things that are that are keeping them up at night, and just having those conversations. And don't make it about selling a product. The first thing you need to do is understand, is to listen to understand. And the more companies you can go into and say, listen, we're not trying to sell you anything. We're looking to come into the American market and we want to understand the American market before we come in and be able to take the time and the effort and maybe invest the time and create focus groups and pay people and, and, and take a look and sit there and say, okay, what is the amount of information that we can gather to be able to understand the market that we're in, to understand what what is the reasons 
why we would add value to this market. So by the time you get there, you're already speaking the right language. You're already being able to say, we've been doing research for over a year to be able to understand that you guys are having this, this, and this challenge. And because of that, we've been doing this in Europe for 50 years. We'd love to come into the United States market. And we'd love to be able to help you. And we'd love to have that conversation with you and then be able to build those conversations. But to walk in as the white knight thinking that you know everything and just say, we're here. We've been you know, the premier European you know, supplier for 150 years. We're just coming in and doing it. You're not going to have any credibility. Just because you were good in Europe doesn't mean that you're going to be good in North America. It is, it is, it's that type of mentality. And I'm sure it goes both ways. I'm sure if an American firm tried to take that mentality and come to Europe, you know, they will, are going to take the time and the effort to be able to build that trust. Because if you don't take the time to understand who you're trying to sell to and why you're going to be valuable to them, you never will be. So that's how trust is built. And it takes time. And you need to invest the time probably a year, maybe a year and a half before you even step foot in North America to be able to understand, you know, what are the things that are going to make you valuable before you it, before you actually go out there and try to sell? And, you know, during that time, you can run test markets, you can try products, you can, you know, a lot of companies make a white label product. They'll make something that doesn't have their name on it and try to sell it within the North American market just to see if it, if it sells. And, you know, that way it's not, if it fails, it's not associated with your brand. But if it does, it lays the groundwork for you to sit there and say, oh, by the way, you know, you guys have been enjoying this product so much. We actually produce this product and now it's got our label on it. So it's, it's being able to be able to test the market out and build that credibility before you walk in the door. That's great. You know, one uh, one thing that I noticed um, while working with the U.S. companies, U.S. companies or U.S. people in general are more open-minded. And uh, probably, it's just my assumption, I don't mm -hmm. know, I'm not U.S. Uh, citizenship, but it's just my assumption. The reason why is that you have this strong community you have like in different industries you know and people really contribute to this community and probably that's why they're open-minded and they're willing to talk you know to talk to chat with you um in europe we have like depending on country but we have slightly different mentality mm -hmm. and my question is um how can we become active members of United States grows and tech communities if we are miles away? I, I think the tech community is probably the easiest way. It's probably one of the easiest communities to get involved with. There are tech groups everywhere and those tech groups are online. You know, there, there's, there's huge tech communities on uh, LinkedIn. There's huge tech communities on different uh, Slack channels. There's huge tech uh, communities that, you know, that are part of different conferences, et cetera. And those conferences are now virtual. And I think it's, it's just out there looking for them. And it's a matter of sitting there going, you know, I'm a technology company that deals with insurance. Well, there are two different organizations, one called Agency Nation and the other one called Insurance Nerds. And once you get plugged into both of those, you get involved in their communities. You know, the same thing happens for various different, you know, tech and manufacturing. There's tech and manufacturing communities. There's, there's organizations online everywhere. And just like any other online community, you... First go in, you look around, you see what's going on, you listen, you see what the conversations are like, and then you you know you join in once once you have a lay of the land and you, and you and you start the conversations and you build the conversations, and those conversations online lead to saying, you know what, let's have a zoom chat and I'd love you know we're a European company. I'd love to find more about the American you know business community from you and do it with some company that's not a competitor. You know, find 
find a company that is in an adjacent market that could be a partner of yours. You know, somebody that's not a direct competitor, somebody that does something similar, but maybe you can you can help them and they can help you and have the conversations with those type of companies. You know, it, there, there's a lot of feeling out there today of partnerships. Partnerships are huge and they're becoming more and more popular. People are starting to realize my tech can only go so far on its own. It, it's when my tech it integrates with your tech and we be able to create something that's going to be beneficial for everybody and we're going to be stronger together that we're going to be able to come up with something. And sometimes that leads to amalgamations of companies. Sometimes that leads to joint partnerships. Sometimes it leads to joint ventures. You know, there's lots of things that come out of it, but it's being open to being a partner of somebody. And, and sometimes maybe being a junior partner for somebody, you know, you may be a, a billion dollar company, but you may end up being a junior partner for a company that's already in an established marketplace. And you can, you know, you can be the engine that makes, that makes them tick. So it's, it's a matter of taking the ego out of it and realizing that it's those partnerships that are going to make everybody stronger. Great. Great. Thanks a lot for providing again, brilliant insights. Um, let's talk marketing. Let's so talk we marketing. Talking about, yeah, <laughs> we were talking about. Uh, Always have you talk marketing. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about some practical stuff. You provided lots of insights. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's try to wrap them up and pretend uh, we are launching together a new startup and we want to market it in the United States. Uh, let's pretend you are CEO or CMO of this new startup. What will be your first steps to launch this startup on US market? Well, I think before you do anything else, you need to understand what your brand is. You need to understand who you are, what you do, why you do it, who you do it for, and why those people should care. What differentiates you? Who is your exact audience? Too many companies out there say anybody with a Visa card and a heartbeat is my client. It's not true. There's 7.5 billion people in the world. If you can get 1% of those people to buy from you, you'll do very well. You know, you will do extremely well if you if you can, you know, if you have 75 million users, you know, you for, for most companies, that's a that's a pretty health healthy uh, lifestyle. So if you look, if you look at things that way, the first thing you need to do is establish what your brand is, because you can't tell the story of your brand. You can't market your brand until you understand what your brand is. Who are your main competitors in the marketplace and what differentiates you from them? Because you don't want to be chasing your competitors. You want to acknowledge that they're there. You want to know what their strengths are. You want to know what their weaknesses are. But in the end, you want to understand what differentiates you from them. What are the key factors that make you a more viable solution? Then it comes down to content uh, creation. We live in a world where content is king because content builds trust. I've got a program called Podcast Host for Hire where what we do is we become the podcast for different companies. What we do is we, we would be for, you know, radio IBM, for example, just pick a, a name off the thing, you know, not that IBM is a client, but just to give one off the thing. And what we do is we would interview somebody within their company on a weekly basis, talking about their product, their service, what's new, what's exciting, what's different, how are things working, where's the thing, and be able to build both internal and external content. And what we do is we take those, those interviews, we slice them into 30 to 50 to you know, 75 different pieces, then that they can take those and use those across social media. Because it's a matter of consistency of message. If you can have a consistent message happening over and over and over again, people start paying attention. If you go out there and start screaming, look at me, nobody cares because you're another me too. You're just another product in the marketplace. If all your differentiator is, is that you're cheaper than somebody else, you will be replaced because sooner or later, somebody will be cheaper than you. And then all you are is a commodity that's low cost, low value, easily replaced and easily forgotten. But if you can determine, if you can have other people determine what your value is to them, 
all of a sudden you become a value uh, partner for them. You become somebody that's integral into their solution platform. You help make their company better. And if your customers understand how you help make them better, how your story you know, resonates with them in a way that says, ah, wait a second, Andre's product is going to make our life easier. If we can integrate this into our into our you know value pack into our tech stack, we're going to be a more far better company. Maybe it's time to go start talking to Andre. And content is what is out there because there's so much noise. We need to be able to create stuff that's not it's not shouting from the ceiling. It's not you know it's not shock and awe. It's got to be stuff that people can just see over and over again that is reliable content that adds value, that tells your story effectively and gives people the reason to go look at your website, to pick up a phone and call you, to go onto your chat, you know, to, to connect with you on social media, whatever. And then you have to have people in your office that are trained that when people do connect with you, whatever platform it is, to make sure that they're going to be there in a timely manner to answer whatever questions those people have, because nothing is more deadly than people who want to do business with you. They connect with you and then they feel ignored because they're not coming back. That's great. I totally agree with you. Um, the only one question I want to ask you, cause I got this question from my community. I assume I know the answer, but I would like, you know, I promised I will ask you. So still want to do Are these rules. You just share it with us. Are they equal to product based companies and to the service based companies? Or is there any difference if you are a European service provider? And you want to market in your service on in US market? Everything's about trust. Whether you're a product-based company, whether you're a, a service-based company, you know, it's all about trust. I would say that there's far more trust, depending on the level. It, it the level of sophistic the the more the level of sophistication, the higher the price tag of the item, the more trust you need to establish. If you have a 10 year old you know solution if it's just a 10 year old solution people will just buy it they'll either buy it or they won't buy it if somebody if somebody likes it they'll just they'll just pick it up and buy it they'll go to amazon or wherever and they'll pick it up and it's done and if it does if it does what they want to do they're happy and they'll talk about it if it doesn't do what they've done they'll throw it away and they won't even think twice about it but if we're dealing with a 100,000 year old product whether it's a whether it's a tech a, a technological solution or technological service now you need to build trust because people are not going to sit there and write a check or put that, you know, transfer the money or whatever they're going to do until they trust that whatever your product or service is, is actually going to move the needle. If it's not going to move the needle, if it's not going to make their life better, if they don't feel that they spend a hundred thousand euros, they're going to make 10 million euros or 5 million euros or 2 million euros or whatever they're not going to buy it. There's got to be an ROI built into their mind, whether that's more effective employees, whether that's you know a more efficient uh, uh, production line, whether it's happier clients, whether whatever the thing is that's their emotional driver, they're not going to go out and reach into their pocket and give you their money if they don't trust that you're going to solve the underlying problem that they have. You know, if it's a difference between something being 95,000 euros and 100,000 euros and the 100,000 euro um, product, you know, solves the, the underlying problems and the 95,000 euro product doesn't, they'll spend the extra 5,000 euros. But if it's two products side by each that are all within the same product, the same dollar amount, the one that's going to win out is the one where they, they trust that your solution is going to solve the problem. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, another question I wanted to ask you. What message might resonate with the US audience? What can motivate them to buy your product or service? So we spoke about trust. 
but the question probably uh, was about, you know, I I, I will uh, I will try to reformulate it. Sure. So, should it be more aggressive and let's say benefit driven? So should should you highlight more benefits and uh, people prefer to make logical decisions? Or should you provide more social proof, you know, that I'm exactly, uh, you, you mentioned it, but I will just provide it as mm -hmm. an example. So saying that we, like we are a family company doing business for 200 years, et cetera, et cetera. Or uh, should it be mostly emotional? So uh, this message should provoke some emo uh, emotions, you know, scarcity or whatever. The answer is yes. You know, it, it really depends on the market. Depends on, it depends on the product, depends on the service, depends on who the audience is. It depends on what their emotional drivers are. You know, some companies are looking for bottom line, is it cheaper? There are, there are companies out there that are looking for what's the least amount of money I can spend and to show people that I'm actually doing something. Whether it works or not, at least I know people know that that we at least tried and we did something, and you know there's there there are those there are those drivers. There's also people that are you know looking for the emotional solution. There are people that are sitting there going, um, you know, I need to have the social proof. It depends. It could be and it could be different buyers within different organizations that have different motivations. You know, in the end, we're dealing with people. In the end, we are absolutely dealing with people, and, and humans are a weird bunch. Humans are an extremely weird bunch, and we all have our own internal motivations. And it could be having to do something with the argument we had with our with our spouse that morning. You know that that drives that decision, or whether I need to make a decision because my boss is yelling at me, and you happen to be the person in front of me. Fine, I don't I don't want to delay this for three months. I'm just going to make a decision because my boss is yelling at me that I need to make a decision. You know, there, there are a million drivers out there. You know, I used to sell, you know, 25 years ago, I used to sell photocopiers. I used to sell things where, you know, 60, 80, $100,000, you know, photocopiers. And you knew you had under 48 hours to sell that photocopier. Because if you didn't, somebody else was, was going to do it. People sit there, they, they bought a photocopier because their photocopier was broken. It was not doing what they were doing anymore. They were frustrated. They were finally at a point where they had, they were fed up and they wanted the old machine out and they wanted something new that was in that, that did what they needed to do. And if you understood that, you could sell a lot of photocopiers, but you had to be, you know, my best friends were the, the photocopy, photocopy uh, uh, tech guys. You know, I worked for Xerox and I used to, every week I used to take the tech guys out for breakfast and find out from them what machines were, were causing people problems. And they saw you know, the, that there was a Xerox machine there, but there was also a Canon machine in there or a Fuji machine in there or an Osei machine in there. And they knew that the, the other techs were in there all the time fixing those machines. And it gave me a great opportunity to walk in the door and say, so, you know, my tech told me the other day that you guys were having problems with your OSE machine. You know, how about we have a conversation about uh, getting rid of that thing and, and giving you something that's going to cost you less and it's going to take care of you a little bit longer. Well, guess what? They might not have been even thinking about buying, but their, but their frustration level was already there to a point where, they, where the tipping point was easy. But it was understanding, it's understanding what the market was, what the motivating factors were of those particular people, and how to deal with the emotions that, you know, that they're, you know, what are, what are the decisions, what are the factors that are allowing them to make a decision? And, you know, different people within the same company can have different motivating factors. So we need to understand that when we're coming in. And marketing is part of that and sales is part of that. And we need to think of marketing and sales working together to understanding what's the pulse of the audience that we're looking for and then having marketing be able to create content that resonates with that pulse. So there needs Perfect. to be, 
there needs to be that that uh, that wonderful symbiotic relationship between the two. Perfect, perfect. I would say even between uh, three departments, but traditionally we used to call these teams as departments, marketing, sales, client success. But from my point of view, um, like these departments will be demolished in future. So we'll have just revenue team companies, uh, sorry, teams that will be working on one common goal. The same like in football or in soccer, if you will, in United States, we have goalkeeper, we have defenders, midfielders, forwards. And let me ask you a question. Which role is more important, forward or defender or goalkeeper or midfielder? So they all have the same goal and the same in business. So teams should be aligned around one goal. Um, one more question from our community i will uh, show it here so this question came from nasco who is a head of growth of one tech company in denmark and uh, he asks what tone of voice to use on our us web property in denmark mm -hmm. we convert quite well in the us the copy is more conversational and conversion to trial is quite low how to approach your onboarding and customer success efforts in the US compared to Europe? More aggressive or more friendly? All right. So the the if I'm understanding the conversation uh, conversational um, copy in in Denmark works very well, but it's not it's not converting very well in the United States. Is that what it, is that what they're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. It it depends on the market and the question is do they have a separate website for the us or is it just a web page on on their on their danish on their danish website so is it is it a danish website that's been just converted to english or is or is it an actual us website that has that has been where the copy has been written um you know for north american uh, marketplace and that's the first question i ask is because because that's challenging you know the, the question is do you have somebody a copywriter from north america who has gone into your danish website and has converted the text to north american you know um idioms and you know colloquialisms and you know and language that resonates with a north american audience because trying to use North American idioms in Europe is going to be very is going to be as challenging as it is using Danish idioms and, and and conversational methods in North America. They don't translate very well. So it's a matter of sitting there going, first of all, is the website optimized in terms of its language for the US market? And I think that that's the first thing you need to ask is you need to go out there to some key clients and saying, if you have a couple good clients in the United States, say, could you look at our North American website? What is it that you like about it? What is it that you find challenging about it? And be willing to listen. You know, be able to listen to your customers and sit there and say, you know, is it just, does it just not logically flow? You know, is, are the buttons in the wrong place? Is, you know, is, is, you know, if you have a chat, you know, some companies have a chat that is on European time. So they've got a, a you know, they've got the chat group, but they have it set up for European time. So whenever the Americans want to sit there and chat with somebody, no one, you know, no one sit there to listen to the chat. So everything goes to voicemail. You know, everything goes into a message that is responded to the next days. Well, if that's the case, why are you having a chat? You know, why if you're not going to have somebody there on North American time zones willing to sit there and listen to and respond to the chat? And can do it in North American, you know, language. There's no point having a chat room, chat bot on your on your machine or on your website. You know, and it's it's taking a look first of all at the language of the flow of the website. You know, the product offering, the videos, um, everything that's on there, and saying, have we optimized this for a North American audience? Have we had somebody that is a North American marketer look at this? And be able to translate, you know, not only the language, but the meaning behind the language to make sure that it resonates properly. And I think that that's the first step that people need to take a look at. 
before they start saying, do we go more aggressive? We don't go more aggressive. That comes down to the local market. It comes down to the product. You know, that's, that's secondary. And, and, and a good ad agency who you hire will be able to help you out with that as well. But I think a lot of it comes down to, does my website speak in the language of my particular audience? And that's that's the question we all need to be. I don't care if you're out, if you're looking at it locally or if you're looking at it around the world. The first question you need to ask is: Is my website speaking to my audience in a way that they you know that they first of all understand that they value and they're willing to work with? You know, does it compel them to action? That's great. That's great. And uh, yep, you know, quite often we try to eliminate and dismiss the most obvious things, because actually this is, you know, the area where you should start, but uh, we prefer to dive deeper into some more, let's say, sophisticated areas of marketing uh, without solving, you know, the basics. But actually it, you know, just uh, to drop my two cents uh, besides our today's conversation. Uh, it happens in B2B marketing in general, like mm -hmm. lots of companies prefer, you know, to eliminate uh, fund fundamental steps like uh, developing, defining target market segments, developing mm -hmm. ideal customer profile, define your unique value proposition that will be aligned with the goals and needs of this uh, ICP, defining the buying process, you know, understanding how can you address the steps in the buying process and you like lots of companies prefer to jump into some you know quick wins cross hacks some uh, tactical approaches and then wondering why it doesn't work so well the question is is are you optimizing your your website for advertising for quick hits for quick sales for click here to buy now or are you optimizing it to build long-term relationships you know, and you need to first determine, are you looking for people to buy now? Or are you looking for people to pick up a phone call to talk about a more sophisticated sale? And that's, you know, and you're right. And, and so, and you're going to, you're going to build your website and you're going to build your copy and you're going to build everything based on what you're, what you want people to do. You know, and it's, 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 you're right. There's no easy fix. There's no easy hack. I have, probably been involved in over a hundred website development development. I mean, I don't develop websites myself, but I do consulting on them, you know, over a hundred websites. And I will tell you that not, not two of them look the same, you know, not two of them have the same language, the same copy, the same, you know, mission or vision, uh, you know, they're all different based on what's the brand of the company and who, who's the audience that they're going after. So it's, it's marketing in a way that's going to resonate with, for your audience and build your brand. And I, I, there, there's no hack for that. That takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of investment and time and money to understand, you know, exactly who you're going after. But the, the return is, is can be 10, 20, 30 X, depending on, on, you know, or 50 X, depending, depending on what you do and how well you do it. That's true. That's true. Ben, I want to finish our chat with, one question that mm -hmm. came from my German, uh, uh, from my friend who is a German entrepreneur. And actually, I assume that would be a fantastic question to wrap up this conversation. How to fail in the most spectacular way in the United <laughs> States? <laughs> I, I think that the, the, the biggest way to fail is to just jump in with both feet. Just, just to just to assume that whatever is going to work in Europe is going to work in the United States, and just you know say we're big enough and we've got enough capital that we're just going to throw we're going to throw money at this and jump into the market and do all of our marketing from Europe and we're going to do you know we're going to we're we're a German company or a Swedish company or British company or whatever and people are going to love us because we're coming in and we're the white knight. And because we have a better solution, and you might have a better solution, people are, are going to jump to it. You know, the companies that don't do the research, that don't understand what's the market that they're going into, 
you know, and why people are motivated to buy within that market that they're walking into are going to fail. And the bigger, you know, the more egotistical they are and the more, you know, uh, single-minded that they are and the more that they think they know everything, the bigger they're going to fail. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks a lot for this chat. Uh, it was insightful for me. Uh, I assume we also touched all the questions uh, we got from my community members. And it was, it, it, it became more clearer, you know, what you need to do. If you want to, uh, if you want not just you know to uh, come into to US and just try to immediately conquer the market, so probably the era of uh, Alexander the Great was like couple of thousands years ago. So it's more about building long-term relationship. It's mm -hmm. all building uh, the trust with the local community as well. You need to treat United States as um, uh, all, all, all the states actually as a standalone country, the same like we are doing in Europe. So uh, you need to define local mentality local values and think about how to align your product benefits and positioning with the local with the local values and yep uh localizing product that's what i mentioned in the beginning a lot of companies you know they it, uh, I mean, uh, I'm not mentioning like uh, early stage startups who can't afford, you know, localizing services, but established companies that have some budget and which neglect these obvious options, you know, hiring local partner that will help to align products positioning and products mes message with the local culture. That's probably also one of the most common mistakes company companies are making when entering to United States. So brilliant insights. Thanks a lot for chatting with me. Uh, I would like to ask you to guide our uh, listeners uh, and give them next steps how they connect uh, with you and sure. uh, your resources. Yeah, I mean, uh, before I go into the thing is, is that everything that I've said about the United States could be assumed that could work in any different market, whether it's Australia, whether it's Canada, whether it's Southeast Asia, Middle East, wherever, you need to start thinking about the localized, localized market. So it's not just the US market. It's, it's walking into any market that you want to walk into with 100 questions before you come up with one answer. And I think that that's probably the the, the more questions you can ask, the more you can understand the local mentality and the local way of doing business, the more successful you are going to be in any marketplace. The best way for people to get in touch with me is through my website. It's yourbrandmarketing.com. That's yourbrandmarketing.com. Everything is there. Access to my podcast is there. Um, our leadership community is there. We've got a new leadership community called Leaders Made Here that that we're uh, we're opening up in August, and I think that's going to be really exciting for people. And we'd love to have you know the more international people we can have involved in that, the better the community is going to be because then we can get people from all over the world talking about leadership and what does leadership mean in different communities. And I think that that's that would be great. And the more people that want to join us, uh, the the more we would love that. Um, my courses on leadership are there. Our, my books are there. Everything is, is, is all available to you at yourbrandmarketing.com. And of course, I'm always available for, uh, for Zoom chats if, if people need to have consulting, no matter where they are in the world. Always happy to help. Cool. Thank you so much. And just a quick note for our listeners, all of the links Ben mentioned, you'll be able to find in the podcast description. Thanks a lot for joining me today. I wish you all the best and I hope we'll have much more opportunities to chat in future. Andre, thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. You have a great evening. Thank you so much and a great day for you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to learn more about system B2B marketing, check out our free email course at getlido.com slash SM. 
you'll learn the eight reasons of ineffective B2B marketing and how to fix them. How to go from marketing chaos to the system marketing and create a steady flow of quality leads. Five questions that will let you know whether you'd give your marketer a bonus or fire him. The problem of RID leads and why you are missing 97% of high quality B2B leads. Why you have to dump to acquire customers. Enroll in a free course at getlido.com slash SM. See you in the next episode.